0: Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Well, hi, friends. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you also. You know, I, I'd like to start our time together a little bit differently, and um, I just want to spend a moment, and let's pray for... Um, what's going on over in Israel right now, and um, all the tension in the Middle East, but specifically, let's lift up um, the people who God said are the apple of his eye. So let's, let's pray. Lord, your, um, your scriptures command us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and so we do. Or would you bring about peace? Lord, we lift up the... The people of Israel who you say are the apple of your eye, uniquely chosen, called, loved by you. May they know your presence in a unique way. Lord, we pray for all of the people who are suffering right now, who are in need, who've walked through. a week plus of things we couldn't even imagine. So Lord, um, would you be gracious? Lord, I pray for your church that you would raise up peacemakers, please. And, and God, that um, somehow, some way, what the enemy would love to use for evil, what was evil God, would you somehow use it for good? Please. So we lift all of this up to you in Jesus' name. And we all say together, amen, amen. amen. Um, I, I hope, just can, would you continue to lift up um, everything going on in the Middle East? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That's Psalm 122.6, if you're unaware, um, that we're commanded to pray for peace. And um, so let's do that. Let's continue to do that. All right, how's this for a transition? Um, so it's homecoming season and, um, a number of schools have already had their homecomings and, um, homecoming dances. And then there's a a number of schools that are getting ready to have their homecoming dance. And every time it's homecoming season, I am reminded of one of my personal greatest blunders of all time. My senior year, I got talked by some friends into asking a girl to homecoming who happened to be an identical twin. Yeah. So there was that. And I thought, and I'm standing before you now and I have no idea why I thought this was a good idea at the time, but I thought I'm gonna go into her place of work, she worked at this pizzeria and I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna ask her to go to homecoming with me while she's on the clock. Um, And so I did, I walked in and there she was standing behind the counter and she was at work and, um, and I said, Um, Hi, uh, uh, Claudia, I was wondering if, if you would go to homecoming with me. And she said, I think you meant to ask my sister. And so I had mustered up all the bravado I could possibly draw from the recesses of my soul to walk in there. And I felt absolutely crushed in that moment. She was really gracious. She went and got her sister and said, hey, I think Ryan's here to ask you, Claudia. To homecoming. And I'm like, I am, and I already had one round of practice at this, so now I feel like I've got to, I still don't know which one I went to homecoming with. I've gotta be, I've gotta be honest. I was I walked up to the door, I was just praying they were wearing name tags. Like, please, Jesus, let it be so. And, and then throughout that, I was just praying. Please don't let them be wearing the same dress. Please don't let that happen. I've always, before that, I'd always read the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah and went, how does that happen? Now I know. Now, I tell you that story to make the point that there are some things you must be certain about before you move forward. Which begs the question, how certain do you have to be about God to move forward in faith? 100%. 100% certain. Sure about everything, like eighty percent certain. Like that was good for good enough for some of you in school. It's like let's get a B, right? Eighty percent certain. Fifty-one um, percent certain. Just a just a little bit more sure than I am unsure. I mean, I think it's a fair question. How certain do you have to be about Jesus in order to move forward in faith? Uh, let's let's roll it back a little bit. How certain were the people Jesus was talking to? About his identity, about who he was. The short answer, not as certain as they wanted to be. Which is really interesting. I think it's actually fascinating because we often imagine, and as a pastor, I'll talk to people all the time who will say things like, if I just had more evidence, then I would have faith. Or if I just saw some of the things that they saw back then in their world, when when Jesus walked with them, then I would have faith. Or if there was less suffering in the world, then I would have faith. Or sometimes what we really mean is if Jesus just agreed with me on a few more things, then I would have faith. And what we're going to see today is that the people who were standing right in front of Jesus, talking to him, observing him do miracles, like opening the eyes of the blind said, we really want it to be more clear. We really want you to answer a few more questions before we say we have faith. And if they didn't have the kind of certainty that they were looking for, maybe we never will either. Like maybe, maybe we're waiting on something that Jesus doesn't intend to give. But maybe we have something that's better than what we say we long for. Like maybe there's a better invitation that's out there. That's exactly what John chapter 10, the second part of it is all about. If you have your Bible, would you open there with me? And let me begin by catching you up on the first half of John 10, because in the first half of John 10, Jesus is in a conversation with some of Israel's religious leaders, and and he claimed that there were thieves and robbers and wolves who wanted to steal, kill, and destroy. But he told his people that he was the good shepherd who came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. He defined his, his goodness as a shepherd leading their lives as one who protects, who knows, who guides, And who rescues. He said that he was the shepherd and that we are his sheep. Somebody say praise the Lord. That's good news. Now, some time passes between verse 21 of John 10 and verse 22 of John 10, which is where we're going to pick up the conversation today. John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, it says this, and at the time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. It was what? Winter. Now, all throughout John's gospel, John will use these poetic phrases in order to invite us to dwell more deeply on the scene that we're just about to hear. He'll say things like, it was light, and then somebody comes to faith. Or it was darkness, and somebody walks away with questions. Here, he says it's winter, and the conversation is going to be a bit cold. Right, it's going to be a bit cold. I love that John gives us this marker of time when the conversation we're going to read is taking place. It was during the Feast of what? Dedication. Well, what was the Feast of Dedication? I'm so glad you asked, okay? A little bit of a history lesson. The Feast of Dedication was the commemoration of the rededication of the temple in Jerusalem after it was taken back from the Assyrians, So, it happened in about 165 BC. The the Assyrians' assault on the temple took place about two years earlier in 167, and a king named Antichias Epiphanes came in, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem, desecrated and decimated the temple, and left all of Israel feeling just gutted. The temple was their heart of worship. It was the place they came to offer sacrifices to their God, to meet with God, to hear from God's voice. And the Assyrians had it, and they were doing unthinkable things in it. Temple prostitutes, I mean, you name it, etc., 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 And then in about 165, a family named the Maccabeans rose up. Jacob Maccabeus went in, or sorry, Judas Maccabeus went in and he overtook the Assyrians and he kicked them out. And then finally the Jews had their temple back. The Feast of Dedication celebrated getting the temple back. And what they did in order to celebrate was they lit a little tiny candle in the window of the temple as a way to say, God, thank you for the light that you have restored. That candle was supposed to last for one day. It ended up lasting, any guesses? Eight days. And the Feast of Dedication is what we know as Hanukkah. So if you're ever in a Bible quiz and somebody asks you, where's the only place in the scripture that Hanukkah is mentioned, John chapter 10, verse 22 is the only place. And if you're ever in a Bible quiz and there's money on the line there and you win money, let's just split it, okay? (laughs) Just remember this moment, just kidding. Feast of dedication. This is the only place it's talked about and it's celebrated kicking out evil rulers, installing godly rulers and redeeming worship in the temple putting things right. So that's the context. Those are the themes that we should be looking for as we read through this section of scripture. Now continuing, it says this, "'And Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, "'How long will you keep us in suspense?' If you are the Christ, if you are the Messiah, if you're the one that we've been waiting for, tell us, say it with me, tell us plainly. Like like Jesus, just make it clear. If you could do something that would signal to us that you are God, that would really help us in order to believe what you are saying. (laughs) What we're gonna see in just a moment is they gather around him and they pick up stones in order to stone him. And it's just interesting to me that they have enough information to wanna kill him, but not enough information to have faith in him. It seems like you either have it one way or another. You either have enough information to kill and have faith, or you don't have enough information for either. But I think it's clear that their hearts are just unopened to him. We often want extreme or excessive clarity, or at least we say we do. We often think, God, if you would just if you would just tell me clearly, if you'd give me enough certainty, if you'd drop a sign out of the sky just telling me who you are, put it on display, then then I would have faith. Then I would bow in reverence. I just lack enough information. I lack enough clarity. I lack enough Certainty. But how many of you know that a request for more clarity is often a way to just simply distance ourselves from faith? And the truth of the matter is that Jesus never promises certainty. That's why he calls us to walk by faith. He doesn't promise that we'll have answers to every single one of our questions. He promises that he will be faithful to walk with us. And living by faith doesn't mean that all of our questions magically disappear. It means that we choose to entrust our lives to God even in the midst of our doubts and our questions. That's what it means. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying it's just blind faith. That's not what I'm saying at all. I think that there's enough that we see around us and enough that we read in history that we can see the fingerprints of God. We'll get to that in just a moment. But I'm not talking about blind faith. See, faith is not belief without fact. It is trust without reservation. Let me say that again. That's what a guy named Derek Johnson once said. Faith is not belief without fact. It's trust without reservation. And so in the rest of this text... We're gonna see Jesus saying, Here's all the things that you can sink your anchor into, even if you don't have certainty. You can walk by faith. And there's four things in this passage that I wanna show you, Jesus points out. Here's how he continued it says, And Jesus answered them, I told you, but you don't believe me. I've told you that I was the Messiah. I, I've, I've made it clear to you, but the problem is not that I'm being unclear. The problem is that you do not believe the words that are coming out of my mouth. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. He's going, you're, you're trying to window shop. You're trying to figure out if you believe from the outside looking in, but it never works that way. You never come to faith from the outside looking in. It happens as we step in and we go, oh, we really are your disciples. We will obey your word, walk in the truth, know the truth, and the truth will set us free. That's the way that it works. But it's interesting, Jesus says, if you would just look around and look at the works, he's going to say that word works four times in this passage alone. You would have enough information to take this step of faith. In fact... The Jewish leaders once asked when Jesus had done a number of different miracles and they were discussing among themselves what they believed about this person standing in front of him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The answer to that was no. Like He's checking all the boxes. We're not expecting him to do any more. Jesus says, even when you don't have 100% clarity, just take a step back and and examine his works. Examine his works. See, some people are all talk and no action, all bark and no bite, but not Jesus. Not Jesus. I mean, just read through the Gospel of John. We've already seen Jesus turn water into wine. Heal the sick. Give sight to the blind. Uh, come up to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years waiting by a pool to be healed tell him get up take up your mat and walk and he did and he did and Jesus says if you would just look around you would have enough evidence in order to take that step of faith even if you don't have certainty you've got enough Paul makes a similar argument when he writes to the church at Rome listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1 Listen for these similar words, answering the question, would you just tell us plainly? For what God, or for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been what? clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are we are you are without excuse here's what Paul says you just have to go outside and look around and look up at the stars and look at the flowers and look at the birds of the air look at creation and in all of it you are going to see the fingerprints of God now, here's the thing, you guys. We have 2,000 years of technology and innovation in order to reaffirm this even more. I mean, right now, we have the James Webb Telescope that is up in space sending pictures back to us Earthlings here, okay? And that telescope is seeing things that we could never even possibly imagine. This is a picture of, a, of stars being born, in our ever-expanding, glorious universe that God created. They've they've taken pictures of star smoke that they say is said to be 13.2 billion light years away from us. They've seen pictures of other planets in orbit around other stars. I mean, just unbelievable things. I mean, the more, I would suggest to you, humbly, that the more we learn about the universe that we call home, the more we're pointed to the fact that this is part of a grand design. Let me me give you one example. Did you know, did you know that if the gravitational force were different by one part in 10 to the 40, now we'll talk about how big of a number that is because it's big, our sun would not exist and neither would we. Okay, so one part in 10 to the 40, what, what's, the, what's a functional equivalent to that? Let me, let me try an attempt to describe it. This is from Frank Turek, a great apologist, and he said this. He said, one part in 10 to the 40 would be like, you or me taking a tape measure and starting on one end of our universe and walking, imagine a tape measure this big. Imagine if that tape measure snapped back on you, right? Okay, <laughs> one end of our universe all the way to the other end of our universe, Okay. And if you moved it the equivalent of one inch, that's the type of a change we're talking about. If our gravitational force was different by that percent, none of us would exist. See, I think the heavens really do declare the glory of God, I, I think the skies proclaim. His works day after day, they pour forth speech. Now, is that ironclad proof? Not in the sense that we're often looking for it. Is it enough to lead you to a creator? I believe that it is. I believe that it is. And see, the questions that remain latent can either lead us to doubt or awe. I mean, if God really is who he says he is, we're not gonna be able to understand everything that he understands. We're human beings. He's divine. And what the scripture says, his fingerprints are everywhere. And if we have eyes to see, oh man, and hearts to hear, then maybe we have enough to step over that line to say, I believe. See, Jesus tells his listeners, if they would just look at his works, they'd see his fingerprints everywhere, but they won't do it. So he goes on and he gives them a few more things to look at. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is an echo back to John chapter 10, verses three through five. I give them what? <coughs> Eternal life. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's a threefold promise there. And I want to focus in on two parts of it right now. But what I want you to see just initially is that this whole section of scripture is about Jesus as the shepherd, not us as the sheep. Jesus is talking about his power. He's talking about his goodness. He's talking about his grace. Um, Echo back to last week, you're still sheep. We are still sheep. We're still weak. We're still helpless. We're still in need. But the good news of the gospel is that while we were sheep, we were still deeply and dearly loved by our good shepherd. Amen? Amen. And Jesus wants his people, even if they still have questions and they're going, would you make it more clear? I think he's inviting them to trust his promises. Trust his promises what were those promises? Two that I want to point out. Number one, that you would have eternal life. This is not the first time that this promise has been made in the gospel of John. You probably saw it, John three sixteen, on a football sign yesterday, or you will today, right? It's not the first time that eternal life is promised. But what is that? What, is, what does eternal life really mean? What does it really mean? The only time Eternal life is described in scripture, it's described in John's gospel, and listen to the way it's described. And this is eternal life, that they, that we, know you, God. This is Jesus praying, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, he points at himself, whom you have sent. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but walking with God. Walking in communion with God. Walking in relationship with God. Walking in interactive interaction with God on a day-to-day basis. Um, I I sort of think about eternal life as this. I I imagine an umbilical cord. Like like one that's attached from a mom to her baby. Connected between us and God. Where through it, by the power of the Spirit, God pours out his love, his grace, his mercy, his wisdom, his guidance, his voice into our life. Eternal life is being connected back to the author of life in a way that his zoe, his life, flows straight into ours. That's eternal life. And if eternal life means knowing God or being in relationship with God, that means it can begin today. Today. You don't have to wait until you die to live eternal life. Praise be to God. But you also don't have to fear that when you die, it will come to an end because of what Jesus said next. He said, and they will never perish. Meaning that cord that connects you to God, your creator, the lover of your soul will never be severed. Now, remember, remember, that this is the Feast of Dedication. And at the Feast of Dedication, the people of Israel are celebrating the fact that evil rulers were kicked out and that the temple was rededicated so that they could come and worship God in the way that they had been designed to worship God. They were remembering the heroic acts of the Maccabees, their former leaders, in overthrowing the Assyrians who had come in to dominate and rule. And I think what Jesus is saying is we're celebrating this feast right now. But he's claiming that their ultimate savior has come. That the one who would oust their greatest enemy, sin, death, and evil, was at hand. That they were looking at the fulfillment of all that the temple pointed to because of what Jesus would do. Listen to the way that the author of Hebrews put it. He says this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That Jesus, in his death, ousted and kicked out the one who had the power of death. Who was that? That is the devil. The devil and all those who through fear of death were subject to life, long slavery. Here's what Jesus is saying. Death is the very thing the devil used to keep people in slavery and in fear. And Jesus is cutting the devil's legs out from underneath him by doing something through the cross and resurrection that means that you and I no longer have to fear death. That we can look death in the eye knowing that while death is a reality, it is never a finality for those who follow the way of Jesus. That just like he was raised, one day he will call our name and we will be too. And so, praise God, praise God. So Jesus is saying to his followers, you don't have to, if you don't have to fear death, you have nothing to fear. And I think that's just a word for somebody in here today. That you've carried fear into this place, maybe week after week after week after week. And your good shepherd today wants you to know, you don't have to fear death, therefore you have nothing to fear. He's conquered it, he's been victorious, he's good, and he holds you. Now, I think the logical question would be, Jesus, what gives you the power And what gives you the right in order to be able to make that declaration? What about the wolves? What about the thieves? What about the robbers? And listen to what he says. He says, my father who has given them, and the them here is us. It's sheep. It's us. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The word snatch here denotes some form of of violence coming against God's people. This eternal power, this never perishing. Oh, you guys, this is such good news. This is such good news. It is kept and it is held not by your power, not by your strength, not by your ingenuity, not even by your faithfulness. It is held and kept by God himself. And so Jesus says, you can rest in my power. You can rest in his power. He's not holding out on you, friends. He's holding you. I love the way that the author of Hebrews puts it when he says this, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Oh. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. I hope today that you are grateful that your confidence doesn't have to rely on your ability, but on Jesus's strength. See, when we falter, he's faithful. When you fail, he's faithful. When you doubt, he's faithful. When you die, he's faithful. He's faithful. He promised and he is faithful. And Jesus is saying that nothing and no one can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything else in all of creation could separate you from the love of God. That's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's good news. That's good news. And then Jesus tells them and us more explicitly why we can trust his power and rest in his power. Here's what he says. He says, I and the Father are what? One. One. See, here's what I I want you to notice, that this statement is often just sort of lifted out of the scriptures as a proof text, not in a negative way, but as a proof text to say, see, Jesus did claim to be God, and he certainly did claim to be God, and he was God, okay? But in the context of the flow of this passage, Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one, and he's using it as a way to give you and me as his sheep confidence that nothing could ever take us from his hand. He's saying the reason that you can have confidence that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus is because you are being held by God himself. I think this is what Jesus is saying, is that all of the power of heaven is leveraged to keep you secure. What a beautiful truth. Now, once again, as we read through John's gospel, this is not, um, for Jesus to claim, I and the Father are one, is not new information. I mean, the whole gospel, I mean, John came out of the gates pretty strong in his gospel. He started with the word was God. In the beginning, the word was God, right? That's the opening line. So so those who have read John's gospel from the beginning, they understand the claims that are being made about Jesus from the very beginning. But those who are hearing it in real time in John chapter 10, they don't have the benefit of reading through his gospel. Some of them are hearing it for the very first time. And for us, it's good news. For them, it's blasphemy. It's blasphemy. Listen to what happens next. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? I love that. That's just a a little bit of a jab. Oh, I'm on trial. Uh, am I I on trial for the water to wine? And they're like, no, we would never. Uh, What about um, the making the man born blind see? Um, Not really that either. Or, Or am I on trial for the guy who was paralyzed walking? No, not that either. And Jesus is like, well, what good work am I on trial for? And the Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're gonna stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. So anybody that tells you, well, as you read through the scriptures, Jesus never claimed to be God. Because that line of thinking is out there. I would just say it's completely erroneous and completely false. Jesus very clearly claimed to be God in a Jewish context to Jewish people. They very clearly understood what he was saying because they wanted to kill him. In fact, they eventually did, spoiler alert, they did kill him. They did. And he raised from the dead. Also, spoiler alert. Happy Easter, okay? Christ is risen. They did. And so you, I mean, you may think that Jesus is a liar. You may think he's a lunatic. But please don't put him in a box to say he never claimed to be the Messiah. He very clearly did. And so while the, while the people Jesus is talking to might not have all the clarity that they want. They may not have all of their boxes checked. Jesus says, you, you've seen enough. You've got promises. You have my power holding you. And then he's got this challenge. Acknowledge my deity, he says. Acknowledge his deity. I and the Father are one. But let's do some theology together for a few moments because that's quite the statement, isn't it? What does it mean that Jesus and his Father are one? So I was driving my um, two youngest kids to school this week and my uh, daughter is just, a uh, 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 voracious reader. I mean, she absolutely loves reading and she loves the Percy Jackson series. Has anybody heard of this? It's sort of a retelling of Greek mythology and Percy, this main character in a number of the books. Well, she was really excited because there's this book that came out that sort of ends the Percy Jackson series. And she was just like telling me all about it on the way to school. She's like, so Percy, in this last book is going to go through a series of tests in order to move from being a demigod, like sort of god." God-ish, God-like, partially God, to becoming immortal. And if he passed those tests, then he becomes immortal. So let me ask you, is that, is that what happens with Jesus? Is he, a, is he a demigod who passes a series of tests and becomes a real God at some point in time? Well, luckily, we have roughly 2,000 years of church history wrestling with that and interpreting it to look back on because this is a challenging concept. So um, let me give you a quick history lesson in sort of this theological conversation that we're having. 325 A.D., There was a man by the name of Arius and he was teaching in Alexandria and he was teaching as a part of the church that Jesus wasn't really fully God. That he was a created being and not co-eternal with God his father. That started to raise the temperature of Christianity all over the world because it was a distinct divergence from what people had believed for 300 plus years. So Constantine, the emperor at the time, started to pull everybody together, and he hosted a council in Nicaea, and he pulled as many of the bishops together as he could possibly pull. He invited 1,800 bishops to come, uh, a few hundred did, and over the course of a number of days, they wrestled with this, que- this primary question, who was Jesus. What, what's the nature and character of Jesus? What does it mean when the scriptures say that he and the Father are one? And out of the Council of Nicaea, we have the Nicene what? Creed, right? A number of churches um, repeat this creed every single week in order to remind, remind themselves who Jesus is. And listen to the words that they penned about Jesus. And they said, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. The only Son of God, begotten from the Father before the ages, before time. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made. Arius, you're wrong. Of the same essence as the Father. When you look at Jesus, you see God. And so for 1,700 years, the church has pointed back to this creed to succinctly summarize and identify what we believe as Jesus followers about the nature and character of Jesus Christ. Now, just to be clear, this was not new information at the time. They were sinking an anchor in a certain point in history down to say this is what we believe because there were attacks coming at the church pushing back against this. He's begotten, not made. That means he's existed for all of eternity, of the same essence as the Father. That means that they are one in will, in power, in mission, that Jesus is not a Percy Jackson demigod, that he is fully God and fully human. He is not a created spiritual being. He's not a created being. He's not only a prophet. He's not only a good teacher. He is completely divine. Full stop. That's what they believe. That's what we believe about God. That's what we believe what Jesus means when he says, I and the Father are one. And by the way, just as a way of reminder, all of this is leveraged to hold you and me safely in his hands. Well, that doesn't stop the debate because it continues. And Jesus, in a very enigmatic way, is going to quote an Old Testament psalm in order to reinforce his point that he and the Father are one. Listen to the way it goes. And put your thinking caps on and follow along in your Bible, because this is a complex and difficult to understand argument. Verse 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are God's, lowercase g? Now, this is a quote from Psalm 82, verse 6. The question is, who are these lowercase g gods that are being referred to? Two primary options. They're, um, one, they are created spiritual beings who have very real power. You might think of them as angels or demons. Or, or... They are people who are called to rule and to reign and to make just judgments so that the people of God could flourish. And they sort of interact in this median space of acting God-like in the community because they make judgments. Now, I think it's the latter of the two and I'll tell you why. Verse 35 continues. If he called them gods, lowercase g, to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. So these lowercase g gods, whoever they are, they have to be the people to whom the word of God came and the word of God here is equated with what? Scripture. So these lowercase g gods are the same people who received scripture. I would say that they are the Israelite rulers or judges who were given scripture and tasked with shepherding and caring for the people in a way that would lead to their flourishing and they were bad shepherds. Just read through Psalm 82. Jesus ends by saying, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, think himself, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. Now, um, raise your hand if you want to explain this to us. Okay, right, yeah. I mean, it's a, this is a complex argument. And here's what I think Jesus is saying. I think he's pointing to scripture that uses, Psalm 82, that calls human rulers, quote unquote, gods or the sons of God because of the position that they held within the community and the power that they were called to operate with, making just and righteous judgment so that the people could flourish. He's saying, you use that term for them, Why would you be so opposed to using it for me, God incarnate, walking among you, the one who was legitimately actually sent by God, and by the way, the one who is doing all the things that you know God said he would do. So I think with the Jedi mind trick, he's pointing back to scripture going, you shouldn't be so thrown off. You shouldn't be so thrown off. How much more should the actual son of God hold that title? Now, whatever you do with this passage... We know what Jesus' point was. He was reinforcing the point, I and the Father are one. Because that's what launched him into all of this. And that's the bookend that he ends with also. Verse 37. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me. And that I am in the Father. He ends where he began. The Father is in me and I am in the Father. When you look at Jesus, you see God. So catch this, catch this. This is the irony. They're celebrating the Feast of Dedication where they remember the rededication and the cleansing of the temple. The temple was the place that people came to worship God. It was said to be the place where heaven and earth overlapped and standing right in front of them they have heaven and earth overlapping personified in the person of Jesus they have the word who was made flesh tabernacling in their midst and they are missing him They have the one who's about to oust their greatest enemy of sin and death and evil and they resist belief and they refuse to worship. And they're looking back in an event that happened almost 200 years ago and they're affirming that event. But they were confident in what God had done in the past but they didn't expect him to do anything in their present and as I looked at that, I just thought, how many of us, we would look back and we go, God, we're confident about what you've done in the past, but I don't know how sure we are or confident we are that you'll do anything in our present. And so when Jesus stands in front of us, do we have this deep sense of conviction that he is who he says he is and can do what he's done in the past? The section ends with, John telling us in a narrative way what starts to happen next, but I think it paints a beautiful picture for us. It says, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. This is sort of where the journey began. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything John said about this man is true. Many people believed in him there. That last phrase just struck me because it's a a few day walk from Jerusalem where Jesus was down to the east side of the Jordan. People resist belief in the temple, but they take this walk into the wilderness one foot in front of the other, thinking to themselves, maybe just maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe, just maybe, the signs point to a savior. Maybe, just maybe, I'm worth saving. So they take this journey, and they stand before him, out in the middle of nowhere, and they believe, they surrender their lives to him. Did they have all of their questions answered? Probably not. Was it plain to them? Depends on how you define that. Did they have some latent doubts? Assuredly. But they believed. One group resists, one group believes. What about you? What about you? Lord, we come before you in an age of evidence and certainty and wanting to measure and define, quantify, make certain. And yet you call us to faith, call us to believe, not blindly, but maybe without all of our questions answered. Lord, for the people in this room who have been holding out saying, I need more evidence. I need need to see in order to believe. Would you just, even in their heart right now, would you just open their heart to you? Just take that step towards you, knowing that even the people who walked with you face to face didn't see it as plainly as they wanted to. Give them faith, Lord, to step towards you, to believe in you to give their lives to you, to surrender. And Lord, as we do, may we experience and taste the eternal life, the God life with us that will never let us go. Pray this in Jesus' name.